You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It is November. We have a World Series champion and the offseason has officially begun. <sighs> For Tyler Mon, Ben Hill, and Sam Dykstra. That's this is the entirety of the episode. I'm just giving people an update that we're on vacation now for the next four months. Is, is that how this works? I think so. Isn't that how it works? We, isn't that how we've always done it? Don't we just take the next four months off, right? No? Not, not I would personally never do that because our listeners are so loyal and they can't. That is true. Um, that is true. You know, hey, if you t- if you two want to abandon our listeners and <laughs> and just disregard their loyalty, that's fine. But I will stay alone and provide the content that they need to make their lives more full, fulfilling, and uh, well rounded. I'm here for you, everybody. No, no, like the rising of the sun in the east. The show before the show podcast is back for another week, uh, as reliable as anything gets. Welcome into this week's episode of the official podcast of Minor League Baseball with Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra in New York City. My name is Tyler Mon. Uh, we do have a World Series champion as of, I don't know, 13 hours ago, 14 hours ago. Congratulations to the Texas Rangers for capturing their first title in franchise history. I was looking to see if I could grab my Rangers hat, but I don't have my camera on today anyway, so you guys just have to imagine me in a Rangers hat. Uh, I spent one year working uh, for a team that was a Rangers affiliate, so therefore I am thrilled today, uh, and that's that's really what matters. The big takeaway from this podcast should be I'm very happy today. That should be everyone's takeaway. Yeah, I, I think the statute of limitations is <laughs> – uh, been exceeded on your opportunity to get a ring. I'm so sorry. It doesn't go from minor league affiliate employees from 2011. Don't get rings in 2023. That's what made the 2011 so. uh, loss in the world series. So depressing uh, as a, an employee of that uh, uh, system. And now in 2023, I am pumped for, uh, for Texas Rangers fans and for the Texas Rangers themselves. Huge congratulations to the Texas Rangers who have ended one of the longest droughts in American professional sports, uh, which at least as far as current droughts go, is no more. Uh, the Rangers capturing their first World Series title last night, knocking off the Arizona Diamondbacks in five games, finishing a perfect run, 11-0 and on the road uh, through the postseason, which is insane. That game really, I mean, it looked like it was going to go down to the wire, and then the top of the ninth, the Rangers break out and uh, grab a few runs off of Paul Seawald, and Marcus Simeon delivers the big blow with the homer. Um, guys, this at the beginning of the season, spoiler alert, I'm going to go back to our predictions episode. None of us had the Texas Rangers winning the World Series. Yeah, I mean, the Rangers winning the World Series this year, there's been a lot of talk about this in baseball circles of like when a team wins the World Series, everybody tries to copy what they've done. And if that's true, I'm really excited to see what this new page of baseball is going to look because I really like the way this Rangers team was built. You look at, you know, under Chris Young, their GM now, um, who has you know, basically been leading their baseball operations for a little while now, but not too, too long. You look at what they've done. They've invested in free agents, bringing in Corey Seager, bringing in Marcus Semyon, really solidifying the middle of their infield. Didn't work out last year, but the pieces were in place. They go out and sign John Gray, add him to the rotation. Didn't pitch out of the rotation in the postseason, but was an arm that they could use. They went out and signed Jacob DeGrom. He had Tommy John surgery, so that wasn't great. So what do they do? They go out, 
at the trade deadline, they go out and get Jordan Montgomery. They trade for Max Scherzer. You know, they use some of their prospect capital to make the major league team better, but they also use their prospect capital to make the team better itself by adding, you know, uh, Young and Carter and some of these other pieces. I mean, they were just really coming at it from all sides. This was not a, we're just going to throw money at the problem type uh, situation. It wasn't just, we're going to trade our entire farm and deplete it to make one big run. They left the important guys in place and Josh Young and Evan Carter. Um, they traded away some excess pieces, brought in some some big impact arms. I really like the way they were built and I'm really excited to see what other teams take from this and hopefully they're willing to invest in their club and give the young guys an opportunity when you have somebody as talented like Evan Carter. Not every system does. He's a difficult guy to re- reproduce. I mean, we'll have him on later in the show again. We'll just replay our interview with him from back in April, but he'll talk about his story of how a lot of people did not know who he was in 2020 entering that draft. Um, he was pretty well hidden in Tennessee. Not a lot of scouts saw him, but the Rangers really believed in him. And now, you know, he was setting records. He had the most doubles by anyone in a postseason. Now, we, you know, postseason is a little bit bigger than postseasons of the past, but still, Evan Carter, who turned 21 a few months ago, is setting Major League Baseball postseason records. That's because the Rangers knew what they had him and gave him opportunities. And I love what that means. So, congratulations to the Texas Rangers. Arizona, Arizona Diamondbacks also really built well to succeed moving forward. Corbin Carroll's only going to get better. I know Alec Thomas had a bad misplay last night in center field, but he's a really good defensive center fielder that, that they can help build around. Brandon Fott's going to only be greater moving forward. We've seen what he can do this postseason. Uh, Arizona's not going anywhere. It might not be like right back into the World Series next year, but they're going to be built to compete for years to come too. So uh, even though it only lasted five games, it was a fun World Series to watch between those two teams and uh, moving forward, you know, I'm not going to throw out a 2024 World Series prediction, um, but I'm sure those two teams will be back in this tournament at this time next year. Well, as I uh, had the thought last night, man, if you could go back to April and tell Mets fans that Max Scherzer would be celebrating a World Series title on November 2nd, I'm sure they would be really thrilled. Uh, some changes uh, in between then and now, but um, Ben, it's uh, the time of year now where uh, we've got all kinds of stuff that is, you know, popping off with the, the off season, getting rolling in minor league baseball. And we've got a really fun conversation coming up with Greensboro here in just a little bit. Uh, but you've had a bunch of stories that are getting to the site uh, and we're going to dive into a few of those. And I want to kick things off with, a story that you've got uh, from Columbus where uh, you got a chance to talk with Marvin Dill uh, with the Columbus Clippers who began working in minor league baseball with the Columbus team uh, then known as the Jets in 1967 uh, and has been a mainstay on the game day scene for Columbus ever since. This is a really cool story. The the minor league lifers, um, it's, it's rare. I feel like that people reach 56 years of involvement in minor league baseball. This is a really cool story. Yeah, you know, that's one of my go-to questions when I visit a ballpark is, you know, always poking around, sniffing around, whatever it is I do, uh, looking for stories. You know, a common tact of mine or angle is, you know, who's been here for a long time? And uh, in Columbus, you know, one of the answers to that question was Marvin Dill. Um, Yeah, he started with the Columbus Jets, also a AAA team in the International League, 1967, as you mentioned, Tyler. Uh, And he was just a teenager, you know, a young teenager, 13 years old, 14 years old, something like that. And he didn't go too much into his, um, you know, childhood history. But, 
he clearly was lost in adrift and um you know said he was the kind of kid who would want to fight you just as much as look at you and getting into the ballpark and having like an adult male role models um you know really gave him a sense of purpose and he was in the visiting clubhouse and that is what he continued to do now the jets relocated to charleston west virginia after the 1970 season and there was no baseball in columbus then until the clippers got there in 1977 but marvin joined right back up in 1977 and for the entirety of the clippers existence at cooper stadium their previous home he was the visiting clubhouse manager now at huntington park he has a vaguely defined role called support service but basically one of the ballpark entrances that is used by a lot of like game day personnel scouts coaches you know, people more involved with the ballpark. He mans the entrance to one of those stations. He sits at a desk that has, you know, closed circuit feeds to all over the ballpark. And it's kind of a combination security guard, um, you know, receptionist type role. And through that job, you know, he just gets to cross paths with people uh, again and again, who he's known for decades upon decades or who have circled back to him because they have a new baseball job. But he might have known them, you know, as a visiting player in the International League in, you know, 1982. Um, and he said, basically, at the end of the day, like this became his life. Baseball is his life. And he doesn't know what he would have been without baseball. And it's just the kind of person I enjoy talking to, you know, a real mainstay. Get your foot in the door in 1967 and you go to a ballpark or go to a game now in 2023, same city. Uh, and he's still there. I mean, that's a, that's a remarkable run. Ben, um, to have somebody who is able to go back through all of those generations of franchise history and multiple franchises, not just franchise history, you've got some really cool pictures in the story of uh, Cooper Stadium, which I know we've talked about uh, in recent weeks um, after your visit to Columbus and all that. But uh, getting perspective on somebody who has been around minor league baseball for that long and knows so much about uh, Columbus, what what sort of feel did you get from somebody like Marvin who's been uh, you know, through all of these different eras in what minor league baseball means to that community. Uh, Huntington Park now is such a crown jewel of minor league baseball. And you told us last week about, you know, the kind of entertainment district uh, that's grown up around Huntington Park. But Cooper Stadium was was a very throwback minor league stadium as well. And the Clippers were there through 2008. Um, what did that stadium, the move to Huntington Park, what does all that mean to, to Columbus when you talk with somebody who has been involved in that community and with, with baseball in that community since 1967? Well, it's just a part of your life. I mean, for him, for Marvin, really very much a part of your life. But any community that has uh, – baseball dating back to the 19th century, you know, it's just that generational thing. And uh, Cooper Stadium, I really wish I'd been able to visit. Um, the last season there was 2008, but it is like a real throwback type facility. It wasn't at the time, but it was built in 1931. So by 2008, uh, it was definitely one of the older ballparks around. You know, I was writing about minor league baseball during that time, but not traveling yet and and never got to that ballpark. Uh, it is like a lot of things in minor league baseball are annoying to write about because of so many you know, names of stadiums change, team name change, affiliations change. Sometimes when you're just trying to convey basic information, it can be frustrating. But that ballpark opened as Redbird Stadium in the 30s because that's the name of the team that was there then. And it was Jets Stadium when the Jets played there. It had a kind of vague, like, Franklin County Municipal Ballpark name for a while and then finally became Cooper Stadium, named after Harold Cooper, who played a role in bringing the Jets to Columbus and then the Clippers to Columbus after the Jets left, kind of one of the, the godfathers of Columbus uh, minor league baseball. And we talked about him briefly um, 
on the podcast, uh, I believe a couple weeks ago, but the story I was told was that he broke, you know, he grew up in Columbus was a kid around the ballpark uh, at Cooper stadium, you know, way back, like in the thirties. And uh, one of his first jobs was apparently wiping the mold off of hot dogs with like a vinegar soaked rag. So talk about uh, how minor league baseball has changed. I Delicious don't and nutritious. Yeah. I don't believe that practice is still um, going on these days. I mean, if it is, listen, yeah. I'm all for job creation. Yeah. And it's good that that was a job at some point. I just, uh, there, let's obviously yeah. I'm not pro mold. I'm not going to say I'm pro mold, <laughs> but I would probably eat a hot dog that's been wiped down with like a vinegar base. I'd probably give that a shot. Yeah. And there was like no vinegar. like, you know, mass poisonings going on in Columbus at the time that were traced back to like bad that hot dogs of. that we know of. I, I, I'm one of those people like, Hey, we live in this culture of safetyism and uh, wear a helmet and oh, trunk or treat instead of trick or treat. No, like just get some mold on a hot dog and do whatever you want. You're going to live and we all die anyway. So like, whatever. I will say if I died from eating a moldy hot dog at a ballpark, I would be like furious that that was the story that led to my death. If I still had the consciousness to be able to process it, that's what led to my death. Tyler Mon, anyway. in the afterlife. I can't believe I'm here because I ate a <laughs> because I ate a moldy hot dog. This is it at a Columbus Jets game. Ridiculous. Um, all right, Ben. Some of my favorite stories uh, that we've ever gotten a chance to cover on the podcast and that you've written about are uh, international employees in minor league baseball, people who come especially from non-traditional baseball backgrounds. Uh, and I learned recently, this is not strictly a uh, an American phenomenon. When I was in Hiroshima a couple of months ago, I got tickets to see a Hiroshima carp game from a uh, an American working in the front office in Hiroshima. And he told me that the NPB teams, Nippon Professional Baseball in Japan, they do this every year where they'll bring over uh, American American, you know, usually recent college graduate graduates who want to get into working in baseball and can do it overseas. Um, you've got a great story from Louisville where you talked to Max Oxley, uh, who your lead for this story is really great. Max Oxley lives in Kentucky and loves baseball and country music. That's not exactly a unique character profile, except for this. He grew up in England. Uh, that, yeah, it's, uh, it's not really the way you ordinarily um, kick off a, a profile of a minor league front office member. This is such a fun story. Yeah, you know, kind of like I was saying earlier, when I'm digging around, sniffing around for stories, a lot of it is ballpark veterans, but then unique career paths, no matter who they may be, is like another uh, constant broad angle I'm going for. And that's what got me alerted to Max. Um, You know, he's just out of college, a young man, but, you know, he grew up in uh, outside of Nottingham, England. Nottingham, best known as, you know, Robin Hood, the sheriff of Nottingham. Um, And of course, out there, football is uh, soccer, as we call it, or some of us call it, um, is the dominant sport. Baseball has a very, very small presence. But in 2011, Max and his family went to a Yankees game as part of a road trip uh, through the United States. They were going from New York to Florida. And so they went to a Yankees game, and it was just one of those things. Like Max got there and fell in love and just thought it was one of the most electric captivating environments he'd ever been a part of. So he starts following baseball back home, you know, trying to watch Yankees games, even though they started at midnight, you know, in in, in uh, England time, whatever time zone that is. I want to say GMT. Is that a GMT? Greenwich Mean. Yeah, yeah Greenwich Mean time. Yeah. Uh, so he's doing his best to follow. He and his brother tracked down a, you know, obviously pretty low-level team, and they played uh, for the Long Eaton Storm, I believe, was the team. So close to Lake Elsinore. Storm. Yeah, I know. Well, maybe that's why they. It could be. It. Hey, it could be. Long Eaton Storm, Lake Elsinore Storm. Um, 
and just became obsessed with baseball. And he decided, especially after seeing D.D. Gregorius hit a game-tying home run in the uh, what was it the 2017 uh, wildcard game, he was like, that's it. <laughs> I got to go. I, I got to move to America. Like, I love baseball. I want to be closer to this. He goes to college uh, in uh, Stetson University in Central Florida, uh, where DeGrom actually ended yeah. up going. And um, right out of college, you know, it was a frantic job search, you know, as an international, you know, he had a bit more of a time frame to get gainful employment and was searching around everywhere, wanted to break into baseball, also has a graphic design passion, you know, loves American iconography, you know, sign, fast food signs and just uh, the kind of aesthetic of America appeals to him. He's trying to work in graphic design. He's trying to work in baseball and bam, got hired by the Louisville bats. And now uh, you've got a young, young English guy getting a start in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes. And he also loves country music, said he likes uh, Johnny Cash, which should go without saying, but also who was the other one he told me? So is it Luke Bryan? Is that the, yeah, it's not the, I feel like everybody loves Luke Bryan yeah, now. That was his other uh, big one. I don't okay. think I put it in the story, but yeah, Luke Bryan. Um, and he, you know, he all summed it up like, you know, my friends tell me I'm the most uh, American Brit there is and seems like he really is. So that's at the other end of the continuum. I write about the Marvin Dills of the world uh, hanging around, not hanging around, but working at the same ballpark since 1967 and the Max Oxleys uh, with unorthodox stories just breaking into the industry. Uh, I'm multifaceted. One thing I love about this story, you mentioned Didi Gregorius. Didi Gregorius, also another European. A very international guy. Yeah. Oh, very international okay. player. Yeah. 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 Grew up uh, playing ball in Amsterdam. Right. Uh, he went and played in the Australian Baseball League for uh, the that league's first season. Uh, yeah. Didi plays on, uh, you know, the Netherlands national teams. Um, yeah. That's that's pretty cool to have been, like, hooked by a fellow, uh, you know. Well, I, I don't want to say European because one time I said European to describe uh, Brits on this podcast. And somebody was like, wait a minute. It had to have been you, Sam. That's not part of the continent or something. Um, but I mean, you know, Max, give us thing. a give us some feedback on that. They, they are European. I mean, Didi was also born in Amsterdam. So True. Like, uh, True. You know, I for the purposes of this conversation, I will not get that title. Okay, good. I don't want to get yelled at by Sam Dykstra again. It happens too often for me. Um, people don't know. Once we stop recording for the podcast, Sam just berates me for my inaccuracies, which are myriad on every episode of the show before the Legion, show. really. Uh, ben, you've also got a uh, a piece coming up about uh, wrapping up some of your travels through the Northwest League uh, in the newsletter, talking about some Northwest League food items. Uh, for those who are planning a 2024 Northwest League trip, what are the uh, what are the food things to be circled on the map? Yeah, well, this is something, you know, I covered throughout the season, of course, the ballpark food. But now I'm going back and kind of rounding it up by road trip. And I realized in putting this together, there was some things I didn't really get around to covering the first time. Um, or including in the newsletter, or getting on social media. So it was kind of good to go back and highlight some things for the first time. So we got the Eugene Emeralds in there. You know, I'm a big fan of the brisket fries. Um, just big, meaty chunks of brisket on top of um, kind of waffle-style fries. So if you go to Eugene and they still have those on the menu, I'd check it out. Hillsboro Hops, you know, Portland area. Um, they really do a great job with, like, tons of rotating specials, uh, fresh local ingredients. And they just had a, an array there the likes of which I'd never really seen. And I don't know if all these things are on the menu all the time. A lot rotates through, but, you know, a taco pizza, which was pretty well executed. I mean, it's basically, it tastes like a taco, but just as pizza toppings instead of, you know, in the traditional uh, tortilla, um, a bean, a chero bean tostada, 
uh, Nashville hot chicken and onion rings. And then one of the most like unusual um, items I saw, at least for a ballpark, the turkey banh mi, you know, the Vietnamese style sandwich with smoked turkey and pickled vegetables, you know, carrots and onions and sprigs of cilantro. Um, so Hillsboro, you really get stuff that is um, that you don't see very often. Uh, Tacoma Rainier's Cheney Stadium. Uh, all their concessions are now handled uh, by Ivar's, which is a cha- a local chain that's been in the area for a long time. Wow. So, Amazing um, chowder. Yeah. So Ivar's. you can get uh, chowder. Ivar's, Ivar's uh, clam chowder at the ballpark. They also have a cod dog, you know, with coleslaw and tartar sauce served like a hot dog style. It's two uh, fried cod patties. Um, and they also have a new chicken stand called Saucy's with a, I mean, it's not with a sign that's kind of neon lit, almost a little bit like a strip joint with like chicken legs, kind of neon chicken legs, all alluring saucies. Um, that was my alluring voice, Sam. He's he's laughing now. Uh, saucies. Um, <laughs> we stopped doing it. <laughs> Especially in description of a chicken. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but saucies, just saucies, had a uh spicy chicken sandwich but the spice came from the jalapeno bagel and not the chicken itself so that was a uh, a unique item as well and then vancouver canadians nap bailey stadium one of the best places you could possibly go anywhere in the well not just the country it's in canada but anywhere in the world to see baseball such a great ballpark you know i once again highlighted the yard dog which we've talked about in the past you know yard is in three feet on a specially made bun costs 29 dollars and 50 cents uh, canadian money they also had um you know, they have sushi there, which I did not highlight, but at the sushi sand, sushi stand, you can get the extreme katsu dog with, you know, Japanese flair. Uh, it has tonkatsu sauce, cabbage, jalapeno, green onion, Japanese mayo, and tempura crunch uh, on a hot dog. So that is something unique to Vancouver as well. And another thing that's unique to Vancouver, and this is just spectacular, tatine. You know, you've heard of poutine. It's tater tot poutine. So you got the tater tots, gravy cheese curds and uh pulled pork and green onions and that's just like a fantastic dish so, amazing yeah it's check out the photo in the newsletter and it'll be a standalone story on milb.com uh, friday the same day this podcast comes out and stay tuned uh in future editions of the newsletter the ben's biz beat please subscribe if you uh have not already you can get that link on my twitter profile or find it on the milb.com homepage or just email me, as I always say, if you just somehow can't find it, benjamin.hill at mlb.com. Want as many people to subscribe as possible. Uh, got a real uh, good community cultivated in there. Lots of great reader feedback. And there's going to be more food stuff. There's going to be a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, I haven't reached the doldrums of the offseason yet because I had so much in the pocket from the road. And I disperse it out uh, with discretion until November, apparently. But I'm going to run out eventually. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Little droplets of fun, like the Reese's Pieces luring E.T. into, I don't know, that's as much as I remember about E.T. what they do? They got him in a closet. He was hiding with the stuffed animals. I don't remember. But anyway, that's Ben's off-season content. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. I, I, I saw E.T. once when I was like eight, and I don't remember anything about it, and I could care less. Spielberg, un- overrated. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a topic for an off-season episode. Sam, I can see Sham, Sam furiously shaking his head. Just uh, okay. We're gonna fire up that debate at some point in a in a doldrums of the off season episode. Uh, uh, yeah. Before that comes, I'll I'll just share this. Apparently, my parents nicknamed me ET when I was a baby because I had a long neck. 
<laughs> and they would well, constantly remind me this as I was like four years old, five years old. I guess old. we know his middle initials now, his new middle initials, Samuel E.T. Dykstra. Yeah. But, uh... yeah. It's all right. I'll save that for my therapist. Okay. You don't need to do that on the show. Yeah, maybe you were an alien. Maybe you should go home to where, what planet was E.T. from? Like Melmac? Something like that. I don't know. Did E.T.'s no, planet have a name? Alpha's from Melmac. Whatever. Palma? We've gone off course. <laughs> Palma Mass sounds like Melmac. Palmer yeah, that's Palmer it. Mass. There it is. That's yeah. what it is. Palmer Mass is actually a planet. And... <laughs> All right, you guys. Uh, ben, we're having a fun conversation with Greensboro. You got a great story up on the site about a redesign, a refresh for the Greensboro Grasshoppers brand. Not a rebrand. Um, they kept the Grasshoppers name. Great new set of logos. Uh, tell us about the conversation to come with Greensboro. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. They did the in- unveil at a ballpark event at uh, First National Bank Field in Greensboro on Wednesday night. And uh, I'd already, already written a story about it and talked to the GM, Tim Vangel, earlier this week. And uh, we said, Tim, now it's time to come on the podcast and talk about it some more for a, a different context. And now that the unveils happened, let's hear all about it. So let's get into it. Here's Tim Vangel. And I keep messing up his name a little bit. Van Vangel. Vangel. Yeah, yeah I got nailed it that time. Tim Vangel, general manager of the Greensboro Grasshoppers. He's coming up next, talking all about a refresh. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. On Wednesday evening, the Greensboro Grasshoppers unveiled a new set of logos, the first uh, new logos of the 2023-2024 offseason. There's a story up about that on MILB and MLB.com right now, but we figured we should cover this on the podcast as well and talk to someone who who knows what went down in Greensboro, Tim Vangel, general manager of the Greensboro Grasshoppers. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, Ben and uh, guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, and this uh, conversation will be slightly redundant for Tim and I, as I spoke with him a couple days ago uh, in order to you know get the information I needed for the MILB.com story. But let me start with a question I could not ask then, which is now the logos have been unveiled. What was the event like at the ballpark on Wednesday evening, and what has the reaction been so far? Yeah, we had a great event last night. Um, had about 400 people, uh, you know, did quick quick press conference and then just fun for the kids with uh, free hot dogs, popcorn, uh, hot chocolate and uh, coffee because it was cold. Not so much the coffee for the kids. Did a big obstacle course, face painter, color station, playground open, photo booth. So everybody had an enjoyable time. And the general feel was that the brand refresh was uh, very well received. Um, had a great night in the store. Uh, line was through the store. You know, Ben, you've been to the ballpark. So if you went to the furthest register all the way lining through the store and then out to the concourse was the line that we had for our brand refresh reveal. So it was good. Excellent. Well, that's a great start and uh, a long way to go with incorporating this identity uh, you know, throughout the ballpark. And um throughout all the marketing efforts. But first, 
for those who haven't seen it yet, and uh, you should go check it out if you haven't seen it yet, but you described this uh, new set of logos as a, as a refresh. If you could just talk a little bit about uh, why you decided to change things up right now and what the general look is right now for the Greensboro Grasshoppers. Yeah, so we're, we are entering the 20th year of our ballpark. And that's not quite the 20th season because of COVID. Uh, but it was it's it's time it's time to to touch the logo you know you don't want to you don't want to mess anything up but at the same time uh, and there was really nothing wrong to change except for you know when you get into it and the people that know better than you uh, we start to look at our script and things and the little nuances of oh this should uh, swoop that way if you're doing this cursive uh, so on and so forth. Um, working with Dan Simon, it all made sense. It was just things that you don't really look at. And then, uh, you know, as far as just time of the change, you know, changing, uh, we're, we're switching the Hunter Green into a Kelly Green, which I'm excited about personally. And, you know, the the, the logo itself, uh, you know, and some of this is tied to our new ownership group, uh, Temerity Baseball, Temerity Capital, uh, who also own Canapolis and us. You know, it was kind of one of those, hey, we don't want to, Mess with, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But at the same time, maybe put their uh, their twist on things. And, you know, time-wise, you know, 20 years, it's a long time. Uh, a lot of national longevity brands, you know, every once in a while you switch it up. Um, so just a slight tweak with it. But then, you know, as far as the actual look and the feel of the logo itself uh, and the grasshopper, you know, wanted that uh, – Maybe not so much, not so much fun. Maybe a little uh, mischievous, side-eyed looking. Uh, who knows what he's up to? Trying to build off of that story as well, and uh, but really just yeah, switching it up, and hopefully the fans like it, and then maybe you know sell a little bit more merchandise. Yeah, and one of the new marks that doesn't feature the uh, mischievous grasshopper, uh, even alternate logo. Um, that you had described as the the blade of grass G with a kind of swirling uh, G. Um, you know, what ways do you think you you see yourselves incorporating that one down the line? You know, it, it, I, it's going to go with our alternate road jersey, our black jersey. Um, for whatever reason, and maybe I'm kidding myself, I think that the players are going to love it. I think your teenager into early 20s is going to love it. You know, it, it kind of has um, – it takes a little bit to understand what it is, but once you do get it, uh, I, th- I think it, it it works well for us and you know our brand. Um, yeah, and, and one thing that you know you talked about a little bit is the switch between the greens. You know, is that is there anything about going to Kelly Green? Is that just does that pop better? You know, uh, you, no. <laughs> there's really there's not a whole lot to to delve into there other than uh andy our owner uh with temerity he liked the kelly green he liked the oakland athletics green and um and and there we are but you know for me dealing with the the hunter green for 20 years you know the logo i love it our old logo um but the hunter green's not so much as far as wearability for me, anyways. Uh, being able to go to the Kelly, uh, I, I think it's going to help uh, with just the wearability of it, the color itself, and you know, hopefully, it'll boost some merchandise sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that stands out to me as part of the logo, and I know 
Tyler, you've talked about this as well, is that you guys are the rare team that has a fielding mascot in your logo. It's not a hitting mascot. Usually we see, uh, you know, a mascot holding a bat in some ways. For you guys, it's a fielding mascot. And I think that's partly because of the pun. He's playing the ball on the hop off the grass. Um, But how much was that a mandate from you guys when you guys were coming out with new logos? Like, hey, we still need the glove involved here. Yeah, you know, and and Ben brought that up a couple of days ago as well, which is it's interesting to hear you guys see that because that's that you know that's the takeaway. Uh, I don't know necessarily it was a mandate, um, but you know, having the grasshopper, you know, again, it, more tying, it's the the hop of the ball, the fielding of you know, it's hopping fun for us, and it, it it ties into that. So I think as far as how we presented this logo initially, and what our thought was in tying into baseball. Um, you know, wanted to continue with that. Uh, and it does, it's a little bit different. Um, but, you know, mainly just the, the tie to the hop of the ball, fielding of the ball, just the grasshoppers that, you know, it might be a bit of a stretch, but that was the general, you know, kind of thought. Tim, you guys are a, a team that has incorporated a uh, a roundel logo, you know, a circular logo, and you got the head of the grasshopper in the middle and Greensboro on top and grasshoppers on the bottom. Um, that has really kind of taken off in sports over the last several years, and I think it's because it's so easy to, you know, to replicate and to put on merchandise, and it makes it so versatile. Um, was that an idea that you guys had? Was that uh, Dan Simon, Studio Simon, who who did this amazing design work? Uh, how did the roundel logo come about? Yeah, that that was really all Dan. Um, And just for your points, Tyler, as far as it's it's easily adaptable to a lot of different substrates, you know, whether it's a T-shirt, a hat, uh, so on and so forth. It has some versatility to it. And that 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 was really all Dan. When you uh, got your first look at, you know, the there are always different versions of logos um, when you are going through a redesign or rebrand process. What stood out about this specific uh, look? I, I personally love the the idea of the mischievous uh, facial expression. I think we've thankfully, especially in minor league baseball, we've kind of gotten away from like that angry looking um character logo and i think a lot more teams are going to the fun logo what about this particular visual identity stood out against presumably some others that you guys got to look at as as prototypes well you know it it was a little bit the the, the tweaking of the eyes and where the eyelids fall kind of the smirk on the side you know the, the the angle of the head um the big one for baseball aficionados you know went around and round on and it's still not perfect um but you know the angle of the feet, the placement of the grasshoppers, the fingers against the ball, and is that you know ergonomically correct? You know it should really be on the backside. He's kind of here, but you know how we're going to place the the arm angle, the glove angle, the feet angle, the hand angle, as far as how it's holding the uh, how he's holding the ball. You know, it, you, you tweak it a little bit and go back and forth, and you know this is just kind of where we landed. Um, but you kind of, you know, and we did, we wanted the, uh, you know, for a long time, we were this, this wholesome, smiling mascot and, uh, you know, we'll continue with that, but I, I you know, having a little bit of a intrigue, that side eye, that smirk that, Hey, you never know what's going on. It, it gives us a little bit, uh, it gives us something to play with. I do love how uh, in the old logo and in the new logo, there is uh, there's a little spot in the hat for the uh, grasshoppers antenna to come out. Antennae, I guess, is the is the word. I do love that as a little. There you go. 
Um, the other thing that I really love is you guys incorporated this other G. We talked about the the uh, blade of grass G, um, but you've got a block G as well. And there's a, a logo, an alternate logo uh, that has the block G behind it. And I know that um, in the story that Ben put together, that's a pretty common look throughout Greensboro's uh, sports community and sporting history. Tell us about kind of the history of the, the block G and being able to incorporate that. Well, you know, I can't really, I can't tell you exactly the origination, but I, you know, I, and it's not something that, you know, purposely done, you know, Dan brought it up. He presented it. It tied because, you know, I don't, I pose as I'm looking at it right now. Um, but when, when he sent this over to us, when we were the uh, Greensboro Yankees, uh, we had a similar block G. Um, and then uh, Guilford College, uh, uh Division three school down the road, they have a similar block G and uh, Greensboro College for that matter. And, and, you know, as we looked at it, you started to think, you know, because the big thing is, you know, we're we are a part of the community. And that, that, that's that's such a big thing, I think, for minor league baseball and what it means. Um, and you always we feel that, you, you know, you should have some kind of a tie. Uh, that you know that has some affinity for for people who grew up here, and you know, again, not a, it was meant to happen and replicated, and but when it was presented and we looked at it, it's like you know what, this is kind of bringing back some of the older history that we've had as far as minor league baseball in Greensboro that's been here for over a hundred years. Well, and there's such a rich history, and you look back at some of the names of teams that have played there. There have been the Greensboro Farmers and the Patriots and Red Sox and Yankees, uh, Hornets uh, pretty recently. And then you were the Greensboro Bats for about a decade, mid-90s to the mid-2000s. To roll out the the Grasshoppers' identity, which is so funny to look back on 2005, which I think was your first season as the Grasshoppers, and think like, oh, it's, it's been a little while, which is insane to me because 2005 feels like it was 15 minutes ago. But this is like a – this is a brand that has – a really good staying power and in minor league baseball nowadays names have taken on their own uh you know flair and culture to them to have come up with something in 2005 and have realized like oh this this really resonates with people this sticks and it's a great identity to continue along with um what does that mean to you guys to not have to go to all right let's rebrand and go something wacky uh keeping grasshoppers it's such a great name it's such a great baseball pun uh and it's got to be very gratifying for you all i would think to to have that knowledge that yeah we don't need to stray away from this it absolutely is you know to 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 have it uh, to have a, a name a brand where people i mean they love it they wear it uh you know my son's little league team they were green and orange colors but they didn't have a name to it but you know what they called themselves the little grasshoppers <laughs> just because we built That's that awesome. in the community and you know I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. And Ben, I think you'll get a kick out of this. And and I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but how we ended up landing on the grasshopper name. Did I ever, have I ever mentioned that uh, to you? I cannot recall. I don't think so. No. So, you know, Donald, our president emeritus, who just recently is not retired, but taking a step back. He, um, you know, we employed this, designer graphic artist you know whatever go through create these names these potentials let's go through a fan vote but donald ended up in his head and he really believed this that the grasshoppers uh 
it just made sense. You know, it's uh, kind of the, the alliteration or the length of, you know, Greensboro, Grasshoppers, G&G, the same kind of length of. And, you know, again, tying to the baseball plays, the, you know, a ball hops, uh, you know, so on and so forth. But in lieu of trying to get ahead of um, general fan vote and, you know, let's do it in the paper and the highest vote wins. Donald, he wanted to he had it in his head that we were going to be the grasshoppers. So for about the second half of the 2004 season. As I'm out mowing the uh, the grass behind the outfield wall, all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I see all these grasshoppers literally like whacking me in the head. They're jumping, they're popping me, they're all over the place. I mean, and it, it, it's crazy. Not just like oh, there's a lot of grasshoppers. This was just a field of them. As the mower goes through, they're all jumping across. Lo and behold, after the season ended, we announced the you know, moving over to the new stadium, the new ballpark, our new name. Donald was just giggling. I said, what the hell are you laughing at? And it's like, well, I've been putting grasshopper nests out at the ballpark of War Memorial Stadium for the last two to three months. So he was going to a local bait shop, buying these hordes of grasshoppers, and then just releasing them around the stadium because he was like, you know, when we announced the name, I didn't want anybody to be like, where the hell is this coming from? <laughs> oh, no, there's grasshoppers all over Greensboro. And no kidding. No kidding. He was doing that for about two to three months. And they were all over the place. And quite frankly, they're still all over the place over there. Well, talk about willing something into into being. That That is a classic story. And I, I had not heard that one before. So there you go with the name origin story. That's a great one. Um, Tim, something we talked about the other day that you know I wasn't able to fit in the article, but I think is an interesting topic um, for this kind of thing that a lot of people don't think about. You changed the logos. You'll have new uniforms. Uh, but that sets in motion like a huge domino effect of so many things you now need to change throughout the ballpark, you know, signage, furniture, uh, um, marketing, just so much goes on into that. And if you could just you know, shine a little light on now what the process is that you have this logo, you know, just how much things need to be redone, reincorporated, you know, take a look at it again. Uh, it's going to be a process. Huge process. I mean, we spent two months on it and every time we turn a, a new corner, it's like, Oh, we didn't think about that. Um, for instance, during last night's brand reveal refresh, we were doing free hot dogs and popcorn. Well, we finished the season at the beginning of September, and so we really haven't had uh, a ton of events, especially some that included food and beverage. So as we roll up the windows of our concession stand to give out free hot dogs and popcorn, we realize, you know, while we've done a great job at branding this ballpark, oh, there's a grasshopper and a Pepsi logo right on the back of the fountain. You know, we didn't, we just didn't roll roll up the roll down. And then you get to it, and you're not looking at the back of a soda fountain. You're not thinking about that. I mean, let alone directional signage, the placards that are on doors. Um, you know, we had decals on the store doors, three uh, rugs, um, your cash wraps, business cards, letterhead, stationery. And then you, you brought up tables. You know, we have. 200 tables that are around throughout our picnic areas and, and so on and so forth. And they all are stickered with our logo. 
So not only did we know that we needed to change it or potentially, it's either that we re-sticker all the logos and we got a bunch of labor and the stickers are 50 bucks a piece or we go and look at we're going to buy new tables. We're going to buy new tables. We've got about $100,000 in cost there. But they, they kind of while you think about it, then it's like, oh, wait, we have an event it's tomorrow. This was on Tuesday. It dawned on me. We kind of got to get those tables out of here. Um, flags, our tents, you know, we have uh, 20 by 20 tents for shade and umbrellas. Well, they all have our logo on them. I, every time I turn around, there's a logo is everywhere. And we, you know, it's like, man, we did a really good job. But now it's like, all right, we're going to scrub it, get rid of it. You know, just switching over the um, the website. You know, website went active uh, last yesterday at 530. But, you know, going through that, it is a big process to make sure that all all of your social media, anything digital, all of your marketing, everything's getting changed. You know, email signature. It's It's been a process and uh, not a cheap one either. You know, it's, oh, hey, let's go through a logo uh, brand, uh, you know, new branding, whatever you want to call it, brand re refresh. It costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money. Yeah, the new uniforms. So they didn't get dropped on with the new uniforms that I, you know, I go over. We're, we're using OT Sports. So I go over to OT Sports because they're 30 minutes down the road. And I go meet with Scott and I talk with him. And this is two months ago. And he's like, hey, I need all of this by October 1st, 1st in order to secure your jerseys by, you know, the new year. Okay, here's all the stuff. Here's all the sizes. Here's everything that we need. Then I sit on a uh, market a club marketing call yes, uh, last week. And the discussion of the new minor league logo happens. And we need to make sure we'll, we'll grandfather everybody in for 2024. But in 2025, the jersey and the pant have to have the new logo. Well, guess what I received uh, two weeks ago is 15 pants of the first run of our sizes for our road that had the wrong logo and the old minor league baseball logo. And that conversation... Yeah, you know, I came up and said, "Well, what what are we supposed to do? We we have these these things in production. Oh, well, you know, we can all you can always auction them off at, after next season. Those are going to be one year old jerseys, uniforms, and now we got to auction them off to get new ones. Luckily, they got the new logo to you know the vendors in time, and I was able to return those pants. But there's always something, right? And I guess that's the point: is everything's always changing, and you're trying to align everything to your you know, parent, whether it be the affiliate and whether, whether it be Major League Baseball, but trying to keep everything current and up to date. And it's just a process. It's a process. Yeah, it's a process. You kind of open up that Pandora's box once you go through a through a, a refresh, a rebrand, whatever the case may be. Um, but fortunately, you've got a lot of months uh, until opening day, and I know it'll go by very quickly as you deal with this endless checklist. Uh, um. But for now, just want to say thanks again uh, for speaking with me twice in one week, but joining us on the podcast, uh, Tim Vangel, General Manager of the Greensboro Grasshoppers. Uh, thanks for joining us and wishing you the best of luck as you enter this new era. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate it, Ben. Guys, thank you very much for the time. It's a lot of fun what you guys do. Again, I, this was enjoyable. Thanks so much for allowing me to participate. And if you're ever in Greensboro, please come check us out. Will do. All right. Have a good day. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, 
You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So that was all of us talking to Greensboro Grasshoppers GM Tim Vangel uh, about their new look and the new design for the 2024 season. Uh, We also wanted to throw it back real quick. We talked earlier about the Texas Rangers being crowned as the 2023 World Series champs. I got a chance to catch up with Evan Carter back in April when he was still a member of the Frisco Rough Riders uh, in the Texas League to talk about the season to come, uh, his origin story as a 2020 pick. Again, how the Rangers basically plucked him out of obscurity. Not a lot of people knew who he was and what his expectations at the time were for the Rangers moving forward, which I think is a nice little Easter egg. So we wanted to throw it back, bring that conversation back now that Evan Carter is a World Series champion. So here's me talking with Evan back in April. All right, Evan, uh, this is your second year in the Texas League. Just what is it like being at Double A first and foremost, being two stops away from the major leagues? Yeah, it's uh, you know it's just a stop along the way. It's super exciting. We've got a great club here going on right now, and uh, just trying to you know make the most of the opportunities we've got here right now, and just uh, see where it takes us from there. Yeah, and what stands out so much about this talented club? You guys have multiple top 100 prospects, multiple guys ranked within the Rangers' top 30. What is so special about these guys, and how have you guys kind of coalesced these first couple weeks? Yeah, you know, I think it's been great just because not only is there a lot of talent on the team, but it's a great clubhouse environment, too. You know, we got a lot of great personalities, and uh, along with that, the coaching staff's been great, too. So um, it's really cool to get to compete, you know, with, with your own team and get better. It's, it's awesome. Who are you looking forward to playing with most on this Frisco team when you found out you were going to A again? Yeah, so I think that um, obviously Thompson JC was with me last year. He's my best friend. I love playing with him. He's you know a great clubhouse guy. Uh, Louis Sonhill, he's great. I mean, dude, there's just there's so many people to name, and uh, it's it's been really good. Yeah, and you got a couple days in this ballpark now. It's known as one of the most hitter friendly in the minor leagues. What stood out to you about playing here specifically? Yeah, you know, I saw, saw it yesterday. Hitter friendly for me uh, firsthand. You know, it's really cool. Um, obviously, the weather's awful right now, but you know. It's uh, it's a really it's a beautiful park, and uh, just try and take advantage of it while you're here for sure. And Evan, you're off to a great start too. You've got an OBP above 500. A lot of people consider you to have one of the best eyes in minor league baseball in terms of knowing what's the ball in the strike. How has that developed at this point in your career? I appreciate it. Um, you know, I think that I think that as far as developing it, man, I, I don't really know. I've asked, got asked that a lot, and I don't really know where it came from. It just kind of has been one of those things that I've done since I've been in the Rangers organization and I think it's helped a lot um, and it's definitely gotten better as I've gone up you know you can't get behind against pitchers that are really good you know you got to try and get offensive counts as much as you can yeah and how is that something you develop are there drills you work on in the offseason like I know a lot of guys work with like VR stuff is there anything you work on to improve that specific part of your game yeah I think that I've done a little bit of vision training I guess um, as far as just for your eyes but as you know I've never really done the VR stuff and things like that but I, I think vision training is kind of one of the things that's helped me a little bit what, what is vision training kind of take us through that just basically watching things move really quick uh, I guess you can do it on a computer something will flash up really quick and you'll try and you know recognize what was on there just track things or just make sure that you can follow 
uh, a really fast moving object. It's kind of it's kind of interesting to get into. Oh, okay. And at what point did you start using that? Was that something the Rangers brought to you? Was that something you brought to yourself? Like, yeah, I saw um, actually a couple players use it before. Uh, Tom Sajacy actually done it before too. Um, so he just kind of introduced it to me. And uh, the Rangers do use it a little bit as far as just actually testing your eyes. So it's uh, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what else do you kind of attribute th- such a hot start? to begin this season because I know you got a little bit of time at AA last year, but you're still here relatively young and off to a quick start. What is you feel like, what has worked best? Man, honestly, I'm just on the mental side of things, just having fun, uh, going out there and whatever happens, happens. Uh, not really trying to set expectations for myself. Um, just going out there, competing every night, you know, and just letting whatever happens, happens. It's been really good for me. So what do you feel like has clicked the most then when you're, when you're just going through that thought process? Yeah, I think that um, whenever I just kind of free myself up mentally, you know, I, I play better you know if I'm out there trying to press or do too much then you know you start slowing down rotation gets a little slower you just you, you're not yourself um, so I guess that's kind of what's clicked for me is just being relaxed at the plate mm-hmm. yeah and you're talking before about your homer here last night that was an oppo shot left center what went into that at bat and how is, how did everything click towards that in terms of the approach you've developed so far yeah man they've been uh, just tossing a lot of sliders in there the whole game so just kind of trying to not necessarily sitting slider but recognizing that I'm probably going to, you know, get one in the zone that at bat and just kind of going up there with that approach. Is that something you feel like has happened to you a lot in double A is that you're getting a lot of breaking balls? Um, I, I hope I keep doing it cause I love breaking <laughs> balls, man. I, yeah, I think I've got a lot of off speed pitches and, uh, that's fine. You know, if you throw it in the zone, I'll hit it. And if you throw it out of the zone, I'm not going to swing at it. So it's, it, it's fine by me. What has been the most eye opening experience about being in double A between last year and this year? Um, I think that just the level of play, it's, it's really cool to kind of realize how close you actually are to the big leagues. Um, you know, you see rehab people come down and you play with them and just realize, man, they're, you know, you're, you're right there. You're really close to just kind of get that feel of, you know, especially like Leody Tavares was down with us a couple of weeks ago. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And what do you feel like was the specific moment where you realized just how close you were? Um, probably, honestly, just when he came down, you know, he... He comes and plays with us for a little while, and next thing you know, he's back up in the big leagues. You know, it's and you see people get called up from Double A all the time. So it's uh, it's definitely, especially for Frisco. You know, the big league stadium's 20 minutes down the road, so you try not to let that creep in. But it definitely is there for sure. Yeah, I was gonna ask, are you somebody who like looks at a depth chart and tries to figure out? No, like, no, no, no. Shoot, play playing GM in your head's a dangerous game, man. You just go out there and do what you can do, and whatever happens from there, you can't you can't control it. Mm-hmm. Well, between your approach and the start you've had, I mean, how close do you feel now compared to when you were in surprise a couple weeks ago? Yeah, man. I mean, I in my head, you know, I'm always gonna think that you're right there and you're ready to play, and you feel like you can contribute. You just got to keep, you know, making your case. You know, you can't control the decisions that are made above you, but. You just keep playing your game and, you know, making your case for the decisions that are being made, and that's all you can do. What do you feel like is the Evan Carter case then? Man, I, I guess for me it would just be I'm I'm doing what I can do right now, man. I'm, right. you know, I just keep performing and hopefully we can keep things rolling and, you know, stay, stay at this pace and uh, hopefully not fall off or anything. So we'll just see how the rest of the season goes. Yeah, one thing I want to touch on with you is you were part of one of the most interesting draft classes in history, obviously, being part of a shortened draft, shortened spring going into it. What was it like going through that process coming out of Tennessee? Yeah, it was uh, interesting is a good word for it. It was, uh, you know, you go from not really thinking you're going to get drafted at all to, you know, you're, you see your name pop up on the TV. It was really – it was – I'm super blessed to be in the position I'm at now, you know, and uh, the Rangers are an incredible organization, so it's it's been really good. Yeah, and you said you were th- thinking you weren't going to get drafted at all. Was that at what point did that pro- thought process stop? Um, you know, I think that we didn't get to play. I think I played like two or three high school games that year, so we didn't really get to do that. But um, 
Kit Fag was at one of my high school games, got to talk to him a little bit, and you know they they were there with me, and uh, it was uh, I guess kind of then just like hey, you know they're really showing interest, and uh, I guess that was kind of the point in time where I thought I had a chance. So uh, did you think you were going? When did you find out you were going to the second round? Was it a few minutes before? Was it when you saw your name on TV? Um, I. Uh, when I saw my name on the TV is when you know for sure. You never know. <laughs> right. I mean, anything could happen. Um, you, somebody could say one thing and that doesn't go through. But, you know, the Rangers, you know, they said that what they were going to do, and that's exactly what happened. So credit to them. What was your draft day experience like? Where, where were you when you found out? It was great, man. Well, we were at home. Um, I was with my family. My, my now wife's family was there with me and a couple of my buddies from back home. So it was really good. And... You know, I feel like a lot of people didn't know who you were. You know, you had some scouts, like you said, from the Rangers who knew that. But, like, what was it like going through that, seeing rankings coming out, seeing mock drafts come out, your name's not coming up, and then have that have the Rangers have such confidence in you? Yeah, I mean, I – the mock drafts and everything, I wasn't even keeping up with any of it because I was like, man, I'm going to school. Like, that's all that matters to me. You know, I'm going to go get an education and, you know, maybe get drafted out of college and uh, – right. I guess when you actually do get drafted, you in hindsight you look back and you're like, man, like I wasn't on any of that stuff. You know, this is kind of cool. Um, but you know, I I know what I'm about. And the Rangers knew what I was about, and just kind of you got to trust that you know that's right. Yeah. In those initial conversations with scouts from the Rangers, what did they like most about you? What did you feel like plugged best into this system? You know, I, I've never really asked asked anybody <laughs> that before. I'm, it, it worked out great. You know, right. I don't. I don't you'd have to ask them. That, I don't know. Okay, well, fair enough. But now you're in an organization, they're investing in the major league club, signing guys like Marcus Semyon, Corey Seager, Jacob DeGrom. What is it like seeing this organization build the way it has last year? Yeah, years? you know, they're they're spending money, and uh, it's, it's exciting. You know, they want to win, and so do we. So you just hope to be part of a winning organization here really soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're talking to you here from Texas. You're a Tennessee guy. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about Texas now that you're playing here? You may be building a career there in a few years or yeah. even this year. Yeah, I love it. You know, there's there's a lot of – barbecue's really good and that's kind of what I've <laughs> kind of learned so far but um and the people are really nice you know it's, it's a great town especially Frisco but you know Arlington I know is going to be the exact same way so I'm really excited what's your go-to barbecue order now Bar- brisket. brisket brisket I love it yeah it's really good they don't they don't make it like that at home not at home no <laughs> <laughs> no this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson welcome back to ghosts of the miners in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once worked the infield in the last days of the Roaring Twenties. The others have been silent this whole time. In the last segment, I asked you which of these minor league baseball players did at one time exist. A. Chester Chatham. B. Charlie Chapman. C. Chaz Channing. Cheers to you if you chose A, Chester Chatham, who played two levels of minor league ball in 1929 and went into the history books for one remarkable accomplishment, which Chatham is said to have achieved in one improbable two-inning stretch of Western League play on a fine August afternoon. As legend has it, Chatham was playing third base for the Pueblo Steelworkers against the Wichita Aviators when Wichita had the bases loaded with nobody out in the fourth inning. 
an Aviators batsman dribbled the ball Chatham's way, and Chatham fired the ball home to retire the lead runner. On the next play, an Aviators batsman dribbled the ball Chatham's way, and Chatham fired the ball home to retire the lead runner. On the next play, an Aviators batsman dribbled the ball, and so on and so forth. Chatham recorded an assist on all three outs of the inning on consecutive plays. All in the scorebook marked 5-2. What's more, in the fifth inning, three straight Wichita hitters slapped a grounder to the hot corner where Chatham on three straight occasions fielded cleanly and tossed the ball across the diamond for a 5-3 ground out. Meaning Chatham notched six consecutive assists at third base. The exact date of the occurrence, if it did take place exactly as records today suggest, is tough to pin down with the most reliable sources pointing to August 24 of 29. The problem is, Pueblo's game of that date is easily accounted for. It was a 10-7 loss to the Tulsa Oilers in which Chatham played right field. But the last thing we want to do to Chatham is Cheatham. The Steelworkers did labor against the Aviators in at least two series and for a minimum of six games that month. And in the middle of the month, the Associated Press distributed an item that ran widely. Chatham's stellar Pueblo third baseman was the whole show as Pueblo beat Wichita 5-3. The high-powered infielder handled numerous chances in big league fashion. Such reportage does not explicitly note Chatham's six consecutive assists, but it seems nobody did more to chat him up than that. And the story certainly supports the idea he was adept enough a glovesman to pull off such a trick, and that such a praise of a Class A player's defensive performance in a single game would merit ink in a wire service report, combined with the specificity of the Chapman achievement lore, suggests that it may well have been about that beat. Our own feet are on more solid ground with this information. Chet Chatham's brother, Buster Chatham, also populated the Pueblo roster at the beginning of the 1929 season, and Buster busted barriers with a consecutive achievement of his own. Over three games in June, he reached base in 11 straight plate appearances, tying a mark that at the time was widely accepted to have been set by Tris Speaker. Baseball historians have since made evident that one Piggy Ward had reached base in 17 straight plate appearances for the Baltimore Orioles back in 1893, and Earl Everell matched that with the Angels in 1962. Buster Chatham had a much longer career in the game than our Chet, who was invited to training camp by new Pueblo manager Jimmy Payton in 1930, but evidently he did not make the team and disappeared into a Great Depression. And that's how it was CCU later for Chester Chatham. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams gave opponents a hard time in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Thunder Bay Thugs. B. The Paris Bruisers. C. The Beaumont Roughnecks. Want to know the answer? Toughen up. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Van Hill is planning on hibernating for the winter, and I've got to set the alarm clock.
Well, final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show, looking back at the 2023 season, Evan Carter stopped by uh, back in April. It's so cool to hear that conversation now, knowing what uh, his 2023 would become. And uh, another huge congratulations to the Texas Rangers and to Rangers fans everywhere. You've been waiting a very long time to celebrate this moment and uh, soak it in. Enjoy it. Um, And that'll do it. Not just for this week, but actually next week, uh, we even though we let off this show by saying, like, we'll never leave you, uh, we're leaving you next week. Um, we're, we're just skipping a week. Uh, everybody is kind of off and, uh, and doing things, uh, so, so we're not going to be around. I'm just going to blame you guys. Be like, you know, Ben and Sam were gone. Nobody wants to hear me alone. That would be funny, actually. I, I, I would love to hear an only Tyler episode. You know, if I just like carried a, a recorder around all day and you could just hear me talking to myself, be kind of you'd be like this this guy needs help. <laughs> he's he's got to he's got to get into society, put in, touch some grass at some point. Um but in 2 weeks we'll be back. Um we uh will have a whole bunch to talk about. Um rosters for the uh Arizona Fall League Fall Stars game coming out soon. We'll have all that coverage uh at MLB pipeline, MILB.com for additional coverage as well. Um yeah, I don't know, fellas, parting thoughts. Um I have a not a thought, but this is just on my mind because I think it's interesting. Um I saw that Nelson Cruz retired today and um Obviously, Cabrera has retired, and they were the top two hitting, you know, all-time or active home run leaders. So I was like, okay, who's the active home run leader right now? It's Giancarlo Stanton with 402. Wow. That's got to be the lowest total of an active leader in a very long time. So I put it out on Twitter, and I don't know if this is actually the answer. I haven't been able to go back and double-check it, but I got an answer that makes sense in terms of when was the last time – that that the active leader in home runs in Major League Baseball had like less than 402. And the answer I received, and this sounds about right to me, but was Ted Williams in... Uh, Holy cow! Let's see what this is the answer I got. Uh, Ted Williams in 1955 is what someone told me. Does that check out? I could that, buy that. That just seems like... 394 at the end of 1955. He finished with 521. He played in 56, 57, 58, 59. He played five more seasons. Did he hit another 126, 127 in those five seasons? Um, That's the answer I was given. If you, uh, the listener, have any uh, insight or want to weigh in on um, Major League seasons with the lowest totals of active home run leaders, that's a good off-season question. So it is an off-season. It, it is. It's fascinating to me, too, because, like, the home run is up now, right? Like, we, we live in an age where we're Everybody's talking, hitting home runs all the time. Yeah. And I get it. I mean, it it makes some sense. And I'm trying to think, like, if, like, maybe in the 80s or something, but guys were playing deep into their careers at that point. Yeah, throughout the 80s, I mean, you had Schmidt um, – you know, who hit his 400th like earlier in the 80s. Reggie Jackson was a couple years ahead of him in terms of hitting those yeah. milestones. Eddie Murray was around. Eddie Murray. Back then, know, crushing, crushing homers. Yeah, kind of joined them later. They, you know, kept it going. And, uh, yeah, it seemed like there was always, even in, like, more small ball-oriented times, there was always, like, a crop of guys who finished with 500 more home runs, and at least one of them was active. Um so it's interesting. Let's look Man, into it. That, that is pretty incredible. Um, yeah, weigh in on that question because that would be really interesting to uh, to discuss. Wow, John Carlos Stanton. Yeah, at four hundred and two, he's it's so 
fascinating the way the last, you know, 25 years of baseball really altered the landscape. For so long, it was, you know, there were three members, five members, eight members of the 500 Home Run Club, whatever it was. And now uh, there are 28. The lowest total among 500 Club members is Eddie Murray at 504. But you think like, oh, well... John Carlos Stanton, he's over 400. He's got to be coming up on some big names. And he is, you know, Duke Snyder is next above him. He's at uh, 407 in his career. But then, you know, two guys who I don't really think of as all-time greats in the history of baseball. Mark Teixeira, very nice career. Mark Teixeira finished with 409 homers. Alfonso Soriano finished with more homers than Mark Teixeira, 412. Um, so that's that's an interesting one. Uh, yeah, I would not... Uh, would not have guessed. Would not have guessed that Edwin Encarnacion also on that list, uh, but he retired, of course, after 2020. Uh, but another recent one. It's a changing landscape in this sport, and one of the things that we love most about it. So that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, uh, big thanks to Josh Jackson for stopping by with ghosts, and uh, for Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill. My name is Tyler Mont. We'll catch you in two weeks. 